The following is a NEC NFL Draft Bible exclusive. Schumann here for the Life, Learning, and Success podcast, uh, live broadcast. We'll be talking in a few minutes with Mitchell Krause. Uh, Mitchell, uh, background leading into him, uh, played football with me at the University of Connecticut, uh, was an outstanding football player. Career was uh, cut short uh, by an injury. Uh, he went on to have tremendous success in the, in the financial advisor circuit. Uh, I shouldn't say circuit, but uh, career, um, moved down to North Carolina, restarted up from a company that he was with, and has, has rebuilt his business again in that same exact sector. But even more importantly, he's, he's not just a, a person that has had success in the financial area, and we'll learn some of his great tips uh, today from that. But he's also a, a small business owner, a person that invests in small businesses, help them to be successful uh, with, without further ado, let me bring on uh, Mitchell Krause. Mitch, how's everything going, buddy? Hey, Dave, what's going on? Things are going well here. How's things by you? Things are going really well. We, um, we started this, this podcast. You're on episode three, so you're right in the forefront in the beginning of everything. And uh, one of the reasons uh, why I wanted to bring you on, because you do have um, – uh, not just an interesting background from a business standpoint and, and uh, success standpoint, but also, you know, you invest in small businesses. So one of the things we're, we're trying to do is trying to continue to help uh, people from all different walks of life succeed in what they want to succeed in, uh, whether it's sports, athletics, business, finance. And, and I think that you fit a really exciting niche and, um, you know, you're, you're a forward-thinking person. So, we're very glad to have you on. For, for any of the uh, people who don't know who you are, which might be quite a, quite a few people, I, I, I'd love if you could just kind of give them a little bit of your background. Uh, I'll give I'll do my best to give the short pitch. <laughs> um, uh, obviously, we played football together at UConn. I, I played in uh, I played ball at Wayne Hills in Wayne, New Jersey. I was coached by uh, Chris Olson, uh, father of. NFL tight end Greg Olson. Um, uh, after college, I went. I started ten days after college and went to work with a small little boutique brokerage firm named Ryan Beck. Uh, I currently work at Stiefel uh, Financial. Um, through twenty years, uh, I've worked at the same firm. The only difference is name change via acquisition. Um, through that twenty-year history, though. Uh, for eight years, I managed private wealth um, on the personal wealth side. Uh, I, I left the personal wealth management side and then went to the institutional side of the business. Um, so I was with a very small group, uh, one of very few groups in the country that actually did what we did, uh, talking with hedge funds and CEOs, CFOs of financial institutions, dealing with corporate buybacks, uh, 10B, Five one plans, um, options, cashless options, exercises, etc. Um, and then after eight years of doing that, uh, both successful uh, on the private wealth and the institutional side, um, I wanted to help people more. So, uh, 
call it a smart decision, a silly decision. Um, I started back again from zero, as most clients had to stay with the institutional side of, uh, with my partners. Um, and then Stiefel acquired KBW, Keith Briette and Woods, and my partners actually moved over to that side of the business. So, um, so now I started three, three and a half years ago, again, on the private wealth management, going from very, very well to zero. And, and now I'm, uh, I'm just rebuilding. Um, but rebuilding in a place where three years after starting from zero, I'm doing pretty well again. So um, along the way, uh, I've invested in uh, a couple organic coffee shops um, up in New Jersey and now uh, working with the same team on uh, North Carolina Microbrew, um, which has been doing uh, very well uh, on both sides. In its short little life, uh, we've gotten into uh, uh, numerous uh, locations down here, and we're starting to go retail into some bigger uh, grocery store locations and chains. So uh, in a very short while, we've ramped up a couple businesses. Um, so I stay busy. Did you, you not just stay busy, <laughs> and, and you didn't even touch on the fact that you're married and have a couple of children as well. So I, I, no, I think you're... I, you're, I, you're <laughs> <laughs> happily married, extremely happily married. I'm very lucky. My wife is, she puts up with me and, and she is awesome. And I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and you know what it's like having a little one. So um, through all of what I just explained, I do my absolute best to, <laughs> believe it or not, put family first. So, um, so I try to condense a tremendous amount of work in a very short period of time. Well, that's a, a great starting point because, you know, just from your intro alone, um, there's some great topics with respect to, to business and, and what people can do to be successful in managing family. Um, but before we go into that, and, and I, I want to talk a little bit, well, I'll take the way back to high school, and obviously you're a great football player, scholarship athlete, uh, you know, you played with us at University of Connecticut, and uh, you were a starter right from the get-go. Um, and, and until until your injury, and we'll talk about some of that. But before we do, let, I, I want to know. Obviously, uh, people do know the name Greg Olson, and you play for his father, who may not be as well known, but obviously in in coaching circles is. Um, he he's a legendary coach in the Hall of Fame. He's since retired uh, in New Jersey. What what did you learn uh, as, as a man and as as a uh, as even a business person, an athlete from, from coach Olson? Um, well, coach was an extension of family. So what we learned at home was hard work, uh, through my parents, um, hard work, hard work, hard work. Uh, and then through the coaching staff, through coach and, uh, his staff, um, we learned that the little things, are, are basically what matters. Uh, just as you learn uh, in life, football is a game of inches. Uh, your head on the wrong side, stepping with the wrong foot, you know, your first step is imperative. All of the small little detail-oriented things are the things that will uh, help you get that extra step and extra edge um, over people who don't really focus on those small things. So you, you take small things, you take... Uh, hard work. I think 
I think learning through dealing with failure. Well, no one likes failure. Uh, there's failure on every play of a football game or there's success on every play of a football game. So no one likes to fail, but I think you can only learn to be successful through some form or some taste of failure. Somebody, somebody knocks you on your butt. Um, you can either stay down, you can pout about it, uh, or you can get back up and make sure that you get the better of that individual much more frequently than he gets the better of you. So, I think if you couple, you know, you couple family, you couple success, you couple hard work, the little things, um, you put all that together, and uh, I think it breeds, uh, it breeds success regardless of what you do in life. So you transfer all of those things from the football field and what you're taught through coach uh, and your family uh, with the foundation, and you bring it to, you know, the the financial world. Um, it's the little things. It's detail oriented. It's getting back to people on time. It's doing what you say. It's meaning what you say. Um, it's, you know, you're, you know, back to old school when your, your handshake actually meant something, you say something, you do it, you stick to it. Um, you say, I don't know if you don't know the answer to the question, but you get the answer to that question as quickly as humanly possible. And you get back to that person as quickly as humanly possible. Um, so I think I, I think uh, you couple all that together, whatever coach taught us, as I just mentioned, can parlay to the financial world. It can parlay to the business world. It can parlay to uh, your family life with you know your wife and your children, even disciplining your children. It's you don't if you say that you're going to do something, you do it. <laughs> if you tell them that they're going to get in trouble if they don't stop doing that, then you make sure that you follow through. Uh, and, and I think I think that's primarily what what coach taught. It's not just about football. It's about life. Football is about life. Now you, you mentioned that your parents are still hard working. Uh, what did your parents do? What was kind of your your upbringing like? Um, both my parents were were uh, from teachers. Uh, my parents were. My father started as a science teacher, and he was a history teacher, and then after. Um, after teaching, he uh, moved into more administrative roles. Um, my mother, she was a teacher. Um, she took, she stopped teaching to raise us, to raise three kids. She stayed at home. Um, they wanted us to be in a nice area. We grew up in Pines Lake, which was a very nice area. Um, but as teachers uh, or one salary, one income household, uh, we didn't have the money that other people did in the area. Um, so my father worked, uh, as, you know, a board member in town for 17 years. And then he was a council member for about 17 years, which kicked a little bit of extra income. He also drove down to the shore and he worked as a bar manager when we were super young to gain extra money. Um, so it was always, uh, it was always do whatever you have to, uh, to, to, to work hard, to make ends meet and to, you know, live in a nice area, go to good schools, etc. They wanted to give us what they didn't have growing up in Patterson and Jersey City, which aren't the, you know, aren't known as the best areas or best school systems um, in the area. So they, they work their tails off to, to get us into those areas. Discipline, um, you know, as it's the foundation as to what coaches, uh, Coach Olson and, and the rest of the crew, um, you know, uh, 
implemented when we were playing ball. Um, I wanted a pair of Nike sneakers when I was eight years old. We didn't have the money to afford them. Everybody was wearing Nikes. Um, my mom told me to get a job. <laughs> I got a taper route. I bought my Nikes. You know, so you know, from the time I was very young, I had a paper route, and then I worked in restaurants and uh, learned how to cook. And you know, I, I've worked. I've been working since I was eight, and I've been buying and saving and doing whatever it is that I have to do to be responsible in order to not only have what I have, but also make sure that I have safety net in the bank to do what it is I need to do if, God forbid, something adverse event happens, like going from a, a very good living and very good income to starting over from zero again. Yeah, and I, I, want, to, I want to get to that, but I think we're building an awesome background with you. And, and what, what we always want to do with, with, with this is – you know, people always look at they look at finished products, right? They look at um, uh, a, a Mark Zuckerberg who all of a sudden has this genius uh, and 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 hits it, strikes it rich in in um, one shot. They don't look at the Warren Buffetts and 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 the background that people have to get them to where to where they are and and the foundation of their ideals. So I I think you know uh, understanding. Uh, where, where you come from really is very, very helpful. People always look at someone who's successful and they think, oh, I want to get that, but they don't know the value system that, that goes into it. Um, in college, and, and, and people who don't know, because every guest we have doesn't like to talk about their, their prowess as, as much as I like to talk about it because I like to help get that out of them. Um, but what I found is, uh, you know, I thought was really interesting. You started basically almost immediately in college, um, and then you had an injury that uh, led to you not being able to play anymore. Um, so you had really early success and, and everything that goes along with that, right, uh, on the football field, and then, um, and then it was taken away from you. How, how did you handle that adversity, um, and, and, and um, how did you get your mind focused on something else that, you know, obviously football you always love, and you were very good at it. Um, how, how did you kind of handle that adversity? College was – football was tough right off the bat in college. Um, you know, starting was interesting because – starting as a freshman was interesting um, because I I was number two guy. Um, I switched positions. I went in as a nose guard, and, you know, I was told that I had the ability to play. Uh, as a as a true freshman, if I switched positions, so I flipped over to center. Um, you know, I was the number two guy fighting for the number one spot, and I wound up being the number two guy on, you know, game day, uh, first day, and you know, like ten plays in, I think Eric Schmidt got hurt, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, one that shows you how fragile a football career can be because <laughs> one play and and you got to you know strap up the helmet and and be ready to play. Um, whether it was my own perceived um, insecurities or not, um, I didn't feel as accepted, I guess. Uh, I was a 17-year-old guy. I was younger than everybody. Uh, I was one of two, you know, UConn athletes that needed their parents to co-sign, you know, certain release forms. Uh, you know, I was 17 years old. I'm playing against 23, 24-year-old guys. Thankfully, uh, I had some strength because uh, Coach Olson focused on uh, a, a great strength program from the time I was 13. Um, it, I, I didn't feel as if I was necessarily accepted by the older guys because 
I was just there. I was young. I was, you know, at camp for three weeks, and there I am starting. I didn't go through spring practice, spring ball, et cetera. Then I kind of felt a little, I don't want to say ostracized, but I kind of felt some glares or some stares from some of the younger guys that I was in there with because, you know, I didn't go to study hall. I was going, you know, I was going to different classes to learn, you know, more uh, film study and blah, blah, blah. And right off the bat, I wanted to go home. <laughs> so, uh, Duckworth That's and really FJ. Yeah, yeah. I, I, never, I wanted to go home. I never realized I, I, that, you know. Yep. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. I, I wanted to go home. I, I, I wanted nothing to do. I, it, I think it was – I was starting for, you know, five, six weeks, and I wanted to go home every week. I hated it. I I, I loved football, but I hated the dynamic of it right there. And um, Duckworth, <laughs> FJ, and uh, Geno Herring, Pop, they kind of took me under their wing as a freshman. They were older guys, and they accepted me into the locker room. They accepted me, you know, as friends and – uh, you know, I owe staying at UConn most likely to FJ Duck and Pop. Um, and as I was accepted by them, my confidence grew, uh, and then I wouldn't have had it any other way. Uh, then fast forward two and a half years, three years to junior year, midway through junior year, when I had the shoulder surgery, um, where I had the shoulder injury, uh, my fault, um, you know, I remember the play like it was yesterday. It was, we ran counter first play of the game, and it should have been touchdown. Um, pretty sure uh, Wilbur took it up the middle when I was logging the guy from Villanova because um, he was crashing hard. So it should have been a touchdown. About seven plays later, we're on the 40-yard line driving, and we called the same play. And I made the decision in my head to kick him out instead of log him because I – I made a bad call thinking that that's what Wilbur was going to do. I should have let Wilbur just run because he was excellent at what he did. Um, and uh, I felt my shoulder in my stomach. And as I said, as I, as quickly as I came in, when Eric went down is as quickly as I go out on one play of the game. And then rebuilding back to a point for my senior year where I thought I was going to be able to play, yet I still could not lift my arm. Um, extreme frustration. I could, you know, squat 635. I could bench 400, yet I couldn't hold my arm up. And uh, the the doctors and coaches thought that I was, uh, I just couldn't deal with the pain. And, you know, as a junior in college, that's, that's a a frustration in, or a senior in college, that's a frustration in and of itself. I played football since the time I was six. (laughs) <laughs> all I ever wanted to do was play my senior year in college. Um, and then to, to kind of question my integrity um, where, again, that, those are the foundations to go back to. That's, that was me. Uh, I was taught to at all times. So, um, you know, so that was difficult uh, dealing with coaches and, and uh, the doctors basically saying that I just, I was fine and I couldn't deal with the pain until finally they scoped me again and realized that they never fixed part of my shoulder that was supposed to be fixed on the first surgery. Uh, so then, you know, a week or two later, I had uh, another full reconstruction <laughs> and sat down with the coaches. Coaches offered me another year uh, to get my master's degree. Um, and at that point in time, I had already put myself into graduation and I had already put myself um, 
in my opinion, the coaches had given up on me. Um, and I just wanted to move from football uh, to get on with my life. I didn't think I was going to be an NFL player. If anything, maybe I could have made it as a long snapper. But once my shoulder was, mm, call it a wet noodle, I didn't have any velocity on my ball. So uh, plan B, life. <laughs> that's, that's how it works, man. No, no, no doubt about it. And and, uh, and then I mean, how, how did you handle it? What 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 you know? How did you change your mindset from uh, you know, guy who was a football player, football star essentially, uh, to um, focusing on a different facet of your life? I'm kind of embarrassed to even say it, um, because there was a period of time through my freshman year and my sophomore year where. I really didn't take school all that seriously. Um, and I knew I wanted to get into business school and, uh, you know, I try to, I try to half-ass study. Um, you know, maybe I, maybe I wasn't so honest sometimes and I would try to peek at somebody's paper and blah, blah, blah. And my grades were not very good. I, I was not me. I was not who I was raised to be. I was outside of who, uh, the man that I was raised to be. Um, and then, you know, I, I just, I kind of said to myself, I can't keep up with these grades. Let me just study an hour a day at the library, <laughs> just an hour a day. I said, let me just go, let me study an hour a day. Didn't matter if I had a test or not. I would just study an hour a day. I still had plenty of fun. And within that, you know, that not liking the position I was in, not liking, not being the person that I was raised to having that guilt of, you shouldn't be looking at somebody else's paper. You should just be doing what you're doing. You're smart enough as is. And again, having that confidence in yourself. Um, I think there are always periods of time where you question your own confidence as a person. Um, you know, and obviously I question my confidence more when I was younger. Uh, you always deal with bouts of peer pressure and, you know, there are always the tests of, you know, you are who you are when no one else is looking. You know, um, and I, I implemented an hour a day or whatever it might have been uh, in the library. Um, and my grades went from poor to excellent. And then I realized that an hour a day got me excellent grades. Um, and the people whom I used to kind of peek over were now peeking at me. So... Um, Again, it, it just was a function of building self-confidence, building the confidence that I had the ability to play and start as a true freshman, building the confidence that I belonged there. Um, you know, I wasn't winning every play. I was 17 going against some strong guys, but I, I definitely held my fair share uh, of, of positive plays, knowing that I had the confidence and the ability and the brains. Um, you're not that stupid football player. You're not that dumb guy. You can't do it. You know, again, People challenge you, uh, and people people challenge you, and people say things to you, and you can either believe them or believe you, believe in yourself. And the more I believed in myself, the more confidence I had. And there's a fine line when you first get in the brokerage business, or when you're in life, uh, a star football player, whatever it might be. There is a very fine line between arrogance and confidence. I firmly believe that to this day. Uh, there's, you can be confident. 
but arrogance is taking it too far. Um, so right. I tried to walk that line, making sure that I was confident but never arrogant. And I'm sure there were bits and pieces of time where somebody mistook me, my, my confidence as arrogance. Um, I'm much more in tune to that uh, now, 20 years later, um, than I was back then. But the same principles still hold true 20 years later. Uh, honesty, integrity, you know, doing what's right when no one's looking. You know, I, I've had a... I've had a quote on my desk for 20 years. I have it right in front of me right now. That says, uh, my basic principle is that you don't make decisions because they are easy. You don't make them because they're cheap. You don't make them because they're popular. You make them because they're right. And that was uh, Theodore Hesburgh. He was chancellor of Notre Dame back in the day. Um, uh, 20 years later, I, I still have a little, <laughs> a little cutout on my desk, and I look at it every day, every morning. It's doing the right thing and focusing on, uh, on working hard uh, and, and being able to adjust. I, I mean, I think those principles that you have uh, are, are amazing. And I think that's a fantastic segue into obviously uh, uh, before we talk about your entrepreneurial pursuits, your, you know, your quote unquote day job, your success as a financial advisor. Um, tell me, tell me, you know, before you talk about how you built your business, and, and I think those principles are obviously the foundation for that, um, tell me about, you know, your philosophy uh, for someone to become financially free and financially successful. Um, you're not taught how to be financially successful or how to be financially free in school. You're never taught how to balance a checkbook. You're never really taught how to manage assets. It, many parents just give allowances and give money and, you know, kids like, oh, can I have 20 pop or can I have 100? Or They don't really understand what it takes to get it. Um, I, I, think, I think my parents making sure that I had a job when I was young and working hard for it, I think that was the foundation for understanding how to be how to be financially successful. I mean, we can go through the talks of, you know, you put $2,000 away when you're eight, you know, somebody puts $2,000 away, you know, when they're 25 through 30, um, you know, and the guy who put $2,000 away when they're eight will have more than that guy who put it away for six years based upon time, value, money, compounding, et cetera. So I don't think people learn how to be financially successful early on, early enough. Um, I think people focus way too much on material things. There's so many things we can do without where the money is best saved um, or invested in something um, than to always buy and buy and consume. I believe we consume way too much. Even those people who make a ridiculous, absorbent amount of money spend on silly things that they don't need. Um, you know, and, and shoot, I, I'm a firm believer that you need to enjoy life. We're given one of them. <laughs> We're given one opportunity to enjoy it. Um, but there's a balance there. Um, and then I've always kind of thought outside the, I've kind of thought outside the box. Um, you know, financial markets are not the only place to make money. Um, I don't believe somebody could give me $10 million or however, however much money, um, and financial markets are the place for that entire $10 million. Um, you, you, if you look at history, 
uh, financial markets have done well, but they haven't been the best performing sector out there. Um, farmland, one of the best performing sectors out there. Uh, from you know back in the 70s, you had oil and gold, uh, you had silver. So understanding history, not necessarily from the standpoint of history that you're taught in school, but reading and understanding history and understanding what's worked. Um, I think putting it all together and being an independent thinker helps you become financially independent. Um, obviously a budget, saving, saving more than what you spent, um, understanding frivolous things, what you should spend on, what you shouldn't spend it on. Um, and again, failure is always a great way to learn and be successful. You know, if you, if you catch yourself in a difficult spot or in a difficult situation, I was 21, 22 years old, kicked out of my parents' house, um, living at a buddy of mine's uh, parents' house. Um, I bought a condo. I was left with $700 in the bank, and I was a 100% commission employee. I had to make, I think, a $1,400 a month mortgage at 22 years old. Um, and I did. I ran scared. I worked hard. I you know, put it all together, and you know, I think my first condo that I bought was 134, 134.5, and three years later I sold it for 205, parlayed it into a house. House was a knockdown. I, it's a lot of people like to know, you know, in financial it, uh, it space. How'd you go and get your clients? I mean, was it picking up the phone and going and getting them, and 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 you know, selling what you know uh, yourself and your expertise? Was it selling the product? How did you go ahead and do that when when that desperate time called? Initially, it was it was cold calling. Um, back in the day, I back in the day, I'd make three hundred calls a day, three hundred dials a day. But it was so you talk about adversity and you talk about getting over adversity. Starting my business over again now is completely different than then. Um, you can make 300 calls a day, and uh, you can. I used to, you know, I, 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 I'm, I wound up three years in or four years in, I wound up acquiring a book of somebody who was leaving, but I also amassed a book of myself to add to that book. So I, I wound up working my own book and then a transition plan. So much of it was cold calling. Uh, the financial institution that I worked for focused on financial stocks, and I used to focus on individuals who dealt with buying uh, thrift conversions or bank stocks. I also focused on, on individuals who bought tax-free municipal bonds. Tax-free municipal bond buyers are very wealthy individuals, and they're very intelligent individuals. They understand that if I can get 5% tax-free, and I'm in one of the highest tax brackets, my taxable equivalent's over 8.5%. Well, how much is the market providing you at that time with the volatility or risk that it does? And sometimes the tax-free return was better off than the volatility of the markets. Um, over the time, things change. You, you have, you know, do not call lists. You have a complete change in business. I used to have the ability to call on a bond that was in our inventory for, you know, two weeks. Now I'm at a firm through acquisition with over 2,500 brokers. That bond's not lasting more than 20 minutes. So I can't, I can't do that. And I also now manage differently today than I used to manage back then. Back then, you know, I think over eight years, I amassed somewhere in the 140 to 150 million that I managed. Um, 
for individuals. And then I, I, today I could probably say then I didn't have a leg to stand on in managing that money. It, it, I didn't have the knowledge or the understanding uh, as to how, to how to do what I was doing versus today. And now I manage a fraction of the money uh, because I'm rebuilding. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird dichotomy to be in right now. The, the experience and the understanding that I have from working private wealth, working capital markets, working the institutional side, sales, institutional sales, institutional sales trading, talking to CEOs, CFOs, et cetera, understanding how the capital markets work, the deal markets work, you know, how research is tied into different firms. Now I know how to mitigate risk and I know how to increase upside. I understand how to remedy the two largest mistakes that most people in this world make, most people in the investing world make. When I say most people... What are, what are those two biggest mistakes? What are the two biggest mistakes that um, people make? The biggest mistakes that investors make when buying, in, when buying individual stocks, they sell their winners too soon. So if they buy a stock at 10 and that stock goes to 12, they just made 20%, they're apt to sell that stock because they're up 20% but they never allow that stock the ability to go from up 20% to being up 200%. They, there's a saying that most brokers say on Wall Street, and they say, you know, bulls make money, bears make money, and pigs get slaughtered. And they'll throw the people who don't take the money off the table into that pigs get slaughtered category. It's cliche. It's rampant around Wall Street. And in my opinion, it's one of the worst sayings that there is because it has nothing to do with being a pig. It has everything to do with understanding how to mitigate the second mistake, <laughs> the second mistake that the vast majority of people make. And this isn't Mitch Krause saying it. This is if there are Bloomberg studies of 88,000 investors. There are studies that uh, have been done by University of Cal. There are studies all around out there that investors disproportionately hold their losers versus their winners. So explain that. Typically yeah, explain that. What what's that? So I say explain say? explain ex, yeah, explain that process. So you're much more apt to to sell a winner than you are a loser. True or false? You That's you true. buy a stock at ten and it goes to twelve you made 20% on your money. If you're talking 10,000 to 12,000 dollars, you made two grand. You're talking 100, you know, 100 grand. You just made, you know, 20 grand. But if you have that same 100,000 dollars or million dollars or whatever it is, and that stock goes from 10 dollars, say you're using 1,000 shares at 10 as the example, that's 10 grand. You know. 10,000 shares at 10, 100 grand, whatever you want to do. And that stock now goes to eight. What are you going to do? What do most people say? Most people say, well, what does your analyst think? <laughs> most people say, oh, I don't want to sell it. I'm, I'm, I don't want to lose money. Most people may not even get a call from their broker because their broker puts their head in the sand and they don't want to address the fact that you've now lost somebody 
$2,000, depending upon the level of the investor, right? So those are the That's two largest exactly mistakes right. on Wall Street. Those are, those are the two largest mistakes on Wall Street by many studies. But most people don't know how to mitigate that risk. Most people won't understand how to let their stock run. And in letting their stock run, they don't know how to protect their downside. The number of individuals, me included, prior to learning certain, certain ways, as I said to you back then, I didn't have the capacity or the understanding of financial markets to understand how to mitigate certain risks. So in today's world, you know, still the, the, the methodology that I use is only used by maybe 5%, 10% of individuals. I mean, you have some of the brightest individuals on Wall Street, some of the best money managers out there who don't use a simple strategy that can protect them from many, uh, many downfalls. You have guys, um, <laughs> I'd never put my, you know, I don't want to put myself in the category. You have guys like Bill Ackman who lost a Pershing Square, a, a huge hedge fund that I believe, based upon what his reporting numbers were, you know, had huge exposure to a company, Valiant Pharmaceuticals, which he rode all the way up. And the rumor has it, or the, the numbers as they report their uh, filings, was he had a very large exposure uh, to Valiant all the way on the downside. And instead of selling it and cutting his losses significantly higher, making X billions of dollars, he, he was averaging down and buying more to his position when it went from 280 down to 22, 25. That's an, it's an absurd amount of money for somebody like me. I mean, I'm sure he's got, you know, exponentially more billions than he manages. But if you take away that loss, his performance moves significantly higher. So if there's a way to allow Valiant Pharmaceuticals to run, yet cut that loss as it starts to sell off in an intelligent way, why don't you implement that strategy? So... Most of Wall Street doesn't do it, but it's a strategy that goes back to a guy by the name of David Ryan um, back in the mid-'80s, uh, and he used the same strategy to win the U.S. National Investing Championship two years, and he, he took second place um, a third year out of four years. I think he amassed a 1,347%. I'm pretty sure that's the number uh, increase over that period of time, only being right 50% of the time. Um, and that's because he was mitigating his downside. He was making sure that he was mitigating his downside. He was protecting his downside while letting his winners run. So, Dave, I think I've asked you this before when we sat down and had lunch a couple months back, but if you have a dollar and, that, and, and you lose a quarter, what percentage of that dollar have you lost? You lost 25%. But now you're sitting with 75%. How much do you need to make now on a percentage basis to get back to that dollar? The answer is 33%. So you lost 25%, but now you're working with less money. So if you're working with less, it takes you more to get back. So now take that dollar and lose 50 cents. You've now lost 50%. But you now need to make up 100% in order to get back to break even. So the more you lose on the downside, the much more difficult it is to get back to break even or even making money on the upside. So, so in my opinion, it's just, again, it's my opinion. 
mitigating downside risk is paramount. And I don't believe many people in this business understand how to mitigate downside risk. And it's only been the past handful of years that I've truly learned how to do so. And it's only because of the different paths that I've taken throughout the course of my career. So many people just, you know, they go through their careers and they learn how to sell people. They learn how to be good salesmen. I'd like to be a good... Uh, Can you that with uh, a simple strategy is by forming stops on the way down? Um, um, we've talked about it before. Way- the, strategy, the, strategy is, the strategy used is, is, uh, that I use is trailing stops. So trailing stops are a lot different than just a straight stop. A straight stop is just a guess. Well, I'm going to stop my stock out at 750 on a $10 stock. Okay, well, that's 25% stop. Now, at 750, if your stock goes from 10 to 15, is your stop still at 750? Is your stop in the marketplace? So if your stock goes from 15 to 750, are you going to get executed? Well, if your stock was at 10 and your stop was at 750, well, that was a 25% stop. But now, if your stock goes to 15 and your stop is at 750, unless you've done something to that stop, now it's down 50%. So you've lost 50% off the high, as opposed to that stop actually trailing the stock which moves higher. If your $10 stock moves to 20 and you had a 25% trailing stop, where would your stop now be? It'd be 15. So even if the stock went from 20 to 15, Sure, you don't optimize your upside, but you've still made 50% on your position. You've, you've implemented a trailing stop, and you've still made money on a position. So could you lose money on a stock? Absolutely. If the stock is bought at 10 and it goes directly to 750, it goes from 10 to 750 right off the bat, sure, you could lose money. But you protected your downside because it could have gone from 750 to 5. So that's a, there, are many different, uh, there are many different strategies of trailing stops. So you could use a fixed trailing stop, and studies have shown that a fixed trailing stop it, uh, applied to stocks out there um, beat guesswork or the average count uh, like some 60-some-odd percent of the time. Um, but if you have a stock like, say, Tesla, so Tesla has a volatility or a beta of like 33 to 35%, which means that it will move up and down 33 to 35%, and it has done so over the course of the past three to five years. So if you implement a 25% trailing stop on a 35% volatile stock, you're basically shooting yourself in the foot from the very beginning. So there are volatility quotient or um, beta adjusted trailing stops where you're utilizing uh, the volatility of, uh, of the, the stock and its past trading. Um, I would never have a trailing stop in the marketplace. I always use the market closing price uh, and I then execute my trades the next day if it closes below a trailing stop. This way you avoid flash crashes. Um, <clears throat> so 
there there are other there are other uh, methodologies to just managing. You don't don't just put a trailing stop on something. Um, there's volatility adjusted position sizing. So if you have say 3M, and 3M has a volatility of about 12%. Um, so if you have 100,000 invested in 3M, 3M can fluctuate between 88 and 112. You know, pretty regularly. You can say that it. You can say that you're going to have that type of fluctuation to be expected. Um, and then you have, say, Tesla, which has a 33 to 35% uh, volatility. So if you put that same 100,000 into Tesla as you did 3M, you could now expect your 100 to go to 65-ish or up to 135. It could, it could very easily go from 100 to 65, and you lose $35,000 right off the bat. So to adjust that volatility and to adjust that risk and to manage it properly, in that scenario, if you had 103M fluctuating at 12, 12%, you had 100, or I guess my question should better be, if you have 103M fluctuating at 12% and you know you could lose $12,000, how much should you then invest dollar-wise in, in, in Tesla, knowing that it's got a 33-ish to 35% volatility? The answer to that question would be about $36,000. $36,000 down three, down 33 or so percent will get you roughly a $12,000 fluctuation. So you're maintaining your volatility and you're maintaining, you're, you're basically reducing the risk of your portfolio by the position sizing of the volatility of those individual stocks. So you right, use trailing and, and stocks. Most- and most people would just end up, the, their normal strategy would just be riding that crazy wave of Tesla. And um, by, by getting out too early on gains and uh, um, not doing the proper job when there, there, there's losses, um, they end up taking more of a hit than actually gaining from, from a stock that potentially could make them a ton of money. So um, understanding I mean, that, that volatility so- is critical. Yeah, so most people utilize, most people think risk equals reward. That's what most people are taught. Most people are taught that in, you know, economics. Most people are taught that, you know, through the best schools in the country. And financial markets, while there's plenty of academic work to it, it doesn't always work out that way. Some of your best performing stocks over the history of time have been the least volatile. Look at Hershey's, for instance. Hershey's it's a cash cow. I mean, everybody and their mother tries to buy these guys and they'll never be, you know, never say never, but it's very difficult for them to ever be sold because 80% of their voting shares is held by the Hershey trust. And there are laws that prevent them from being sold, but yet companies still try because they understand that there's very little research and development in chocolate. So they don't have a lot of expenditures in chocolate to research chocolate and people eat chocolate all the time. So it's a cash cow. So, you know, but their volatility quotient is very low, yet their returns with dividends over the course of time have been exponential. So if you tell, if you ask me, and again, everybody's different in this business, so I don't want to pigeonhole any, you know, everybody's different. The way I manage and the way I'd like to be is if, I have two choices, and I'm looking at Tesla and I'm looking at Hershey's. I'd rather buy Hershey's 
than Tesla because while Tesla has some really cool cars, the whole thing, the whole model is still unproven with the subsidies that they get from the government and their revenue and deliveries. And So I'd rather take the less volatile, which is produced better over the course of history than the extremely volatile. Now, does that mean that I won't put volatile stocks into a portfolio? <clears throat> Absolutely not. I use you know, gold stocks and junior minor stocks as hedges, which are extremely volatile. But I also do it as a proper percentage of an allocation. So it, it, it's, it's all about mitigating risk on the downside and understanding where to take those little added risks to get some extra alpha to a portfolio. When I say alpha, I mean a little bit of extra performance. Absolutely. Now, as far as, um, you know, your other side of the business. So now you, you've also invested in some small business. Tell me what, what the, the, mm-hmm. the theory was in, in, in getting involved with uh, the, the brew house and the coffee shop, um, which is a little bit of departure for what you do in the financial space, or is it a departure? I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a departure. I mean, um, so I also, have a, I also have a mobile application for the iPhone, which basically turned out to be a failure. Um, and it, it's become, it was a failure because I didn't fail fast enough. <laughs> I failed too slowly. Um, you know, so the idea and the mobile application is a mobile loyalty application, a digital mobile loyalty application to get rid of all the key, you know, those things on your keychain. Um, and my lack of knowledge in the programming space really kind of hurt me a bit. Um, and this was out back before Starbucks had their mobile app. The idea actually came when I was standing in line at a Starbucks where I was, there was a girl standing next to me and she had this huge key ring and it was just a, an enormous key ring of, you know, uh, loyalty apps, uh, loyalty cards. And I said, Oh, it would be great if you could put these all on your phone and just scan them at the register. So before Starbucks had theirs, before, uh, Apple had Apple Pay or mobile wallet. I had that idea. So that could have been a home run. <laughs> it just, um, but it failed based upon not failing fast enough, not having enough hands-on knowledge within the business. So again, you learn from failures. So that mobile app is still out there and we'll release it one more time uh, in the next handful of weeks with some really cool up- upgrades and updates and We'll see if it can take off and morph into something else. Um, some people don't really want credit cards on their phone, but they're still willing to have loyalty cards and uh, gift cards. So, you know, that could grow uh, still. Uh, but to date, it's a failure, and I'd say because it, it didn't fail fast enough. I didn't, I didn't move quickly enough with it. Um, also, my, my, uh, my interests at, with my current job, I couldn't look for investors uh, for another company based upon what I do here, based upon conflicts of interest. So it was all self-funded. Um, the coffee shop came along through a buddy of mine and, um, he, he, he said, yeah, this is what we're going to do. And you know, what do you think? And I said, sure. I said, let's do it together. I see him all the time. I do it all the time. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, he went down to Costa Rica and he went down to a handful of other places and he took a handful of courses. And, you know, from there, he kind of brought me along with him 
I'm, I'm always up for learning new things. I'm also always up, as I mentioned at the very onset, um, for diversified revenue streams. Uh, my income is predicated upon financial markets. My retirement is predicated upon financial markets. Um, it's kind of like, you know, I guess on a grand scale, kind of like a Peyton Manning being invested in Papa John's or beer distribution or whatever. It's it's something other than a financial market um, to have some form of a revenue stream or revenue source, et cetera. So um, we went from one coffee shop to two. Um, both of them are successful coffee shops, uh, but now getting into the brewery side of things, the breweries down in North Carolina, um, with the coffee shops up north, it's difficult to manage that with the small group that we have. So um, we might actually revamp that and uh, move to a coffee bar, so to speak, down here and just try a new concept out um, as to where it's espressos, lattes, you know, coffee with our own fresh roasted beans. We roast them fresh and uh, we have our own blend and our own mix. Um, and there's really nothing quite like a, a good fresh cup of freshly roasted bean coffee. Um, most people you know, they'll tell you that freshly roasted coffee should be had within three to, I think it's 11 days of being roasted. And very, very few beans in any store that you buy are going to be that fresh. Um, you don't want to drink them prior to the three days because of the oils that are still being released. Um, but if you have that fresh cup of coffee and you have that fresh blend for co for coffee drinkers, for those who really like coffee, there's really nothing like it. So um, we went there. We're going to try to do that for a breakfast lunch kind of thing. Um, and then have the, the beer, the microbrews on tap for an afternoon, uh, evening kind of thing you know, make it a place where kids can study, kids can come, you know, do their work, hang out, chill, you know, throw some cornhole, you know, do whatever, kind of just make it a chill place. So that's a concept that we're working with right now. And with the brewery being attached to the coffee shop, we kind of blend the two together. So it, always morphing, man. It's, 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 always, uh, it's always changing. It's ever-changing and always morphing. What? are some of the factors that you use in deciding, you know, so you dove into a few small businesses. Um, what are some of the factors that you evaluate into diving into a business with someone you want to get in with? Um, <laughs> first, I think you have to look at the dynamics of the two individuals or the individuals involved in the business. Um, if you don't get along with people, if you don't like certain people, it's tough to just have a strictly business relationship with somebody that you, um, that you don't care for. Uh, it, it just, it makes dealing with that ugly. Um, I think that, I think hard work and knowledge, um, think is you're tied and coupled with people who are willing to work hard, are, are willing to learn, and I think you can really do anything together. Um, you know, I, I literally built my house. So while I know this doesn't 
tie in with business uh, uh, from what you just asked me. The house that I bought was a knockdown. It was a 600-square-foot pretty much teardown. And I bought it. <laughs> I gutted it. I added about 24-plus hundred square feet on with a, you know, a, a detached offset or an attached offset garage. And I did about 65 to 70% myself. I did a lot of the plumbing myself. Uh, I did a lot of the electrical myself. Um, I did a lot of the framing myself. So these are all things that I had no idea how to do prior to buying the house. I had very little experience in doing it, but I had never done it to a large scale before. <clears throat> I, I am a firm believer that so long as you have um, initiative, so long as you're willing to work hard, and so, will as, so long as you're willing to, to really delve and dive into it, you can kind of teach yourself how to do most things. Um, and that's by no means taking anything away from tradesmen. They're, they're you know, F.J. Burkowski is a master craftsman when it comes to molding. He's amazing. I am nowhere, nowhere close to the talent or eye that he has. He came and he helped me with a lot of the molding in that home. Um, but you can do a lot of things. I can put crown up. I can do, you know, pediment heads. I can build these things all by watching, learning, and understanding. So take that back to business. If you have somebody that you have a good relationship with, a good working relationship with, they have the same type of work ethic that you do, he nor my business partners um, will never ask somebody to do what he's not willing to do himself. Um, so just as he'll ask uh, you know, the, the server to uh, mop the floor, he'll pick up a mop and mop the floor. In, in being part of the small business, you're, ne you're never above anybody. I mean, it all falls on your shoulders, in essence. I mean, you are responsible for that person's experience being a good one. If the place looks dirty, if the place looks, you know, messy, if the place isn't meticulous, if the coffee's not good, you're going to get the complaint. It all falls back on you. <clears throat> and ultimately, you know, referrals are, you know, the name of the game. So if somebody has a bad experience, you know in this world people are going to post that online, you know, and, and you don't want it to happen. So to answer your question, um, the relationship and understanding of the individual that you're getting into business with is probably paramount, in my opinion. That is, I, I think, one of the things that people don't realize. They, they think it has to be about um, ideas aligning, but it's much more about uh, the people that are doing the work together um, that make the difference and people they have to go go and, and strategize with and solve problems with and, and figuring out new ways of doing things and hoping that they're open. I've had, you know, business partners in the past myself and I've had people that I've been successful with and people that I've not been successful with and it always came down to uh, the values aligning, you know, one guy wants to go big, the other one wants to stay small. Those, those kind of values, you know, I guess how do you go and figure out beforehand if that part of the value should align or is that something you figure out along the way? Well, I, Dave, I apologize. I didn't, I didn't catch that full question. How do I go about what? So let's say, you know, um, two business 
partners want to get together. And mm-hmm. they both had the idea of a coffee shop. Um, and they discussed the idea of the coffee shop, the quality of the coffee shop. They have all of that together. One person thinks, you know, this could be a chain around the country. The other one thinks, hey, maybe I'll have two, maybe I'll just have one, uh, and I'll be happy. When does that discussion begin between two potential partners? Early in the process? Do you get going and see, you know, the philosophy sometimes is, hey, let's get this thing rolling, see if we got something here. Or does, uh, or, or does that have to be happen before you even go into business together? Uh, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I only know the answer to that question as to, from my experiences. I'm sure other people do it differently, and other people are much more successful than I am at certain things. I mean, there are people who own, you know, huge chains of, of things, and their vision was something that might have been just brought on very quickly. I'm a little bit more uh, conservative by trade, and I think that there's a little bit, or by nature, and I'm, I'm, you know, there's a little bit for me of a courtship period, so to speak. So, um, you know, I'd like to think I have a very successful marriage, and you know, my wife and I trust each other immensely and without trust, I don't think you have much of a marriage. Um, I think once trust is lost, it's very difficult to have a marriage. Uh, so I'm blessed that way. Um, I think a business relationship is very similar. You're going into business with somebody on financial decisions and other decisions. You're going to spend more time with that person sometimes than you spend with your spouse. <laughs> so I, I – you know, since my primary job is is managing assets and money, um, the others kind of take a back seat to what I feel most comfortable with. And if, you know, my business partner, my current business partner and I, um, we get along extremely well together. Um, we get, you know, our wives get along. We see the world. We see things very similarly. Um, our personalities also, uh, our personalities also, um, I would say help each other from the standpoint of he might he thinks huge which is great um, he thinks huge uh, but also um, sometimes I will add what he might not want to hear um, and he might still not listen to it he's the majority partner I'm a minority I'm an investor I'm, I'm, a, I'm a small you know a small part of it but Still, I think that there are times, for the most part, when we uh, when we talk, it's it is, hey, you know, I didn't think of that. So I don't think you always want to be in business with somebody where you think 100% the same way. I think being in business with somebody who uh, will have some will have some ideas, some will have ideas to um, play devil's advocate. Um, you know, again, just like a just like a marriage. Uh, I think if you're too similar to your spouse, it's tough. I think to have, you know, a little bit of differences to bounce off of each other and to play off of each other actually work better than people who are the exact same person. Um, so I think it's, I think it's courtship. I think it's relationships. That's, that's my thought process. I think, I think on that note, um, I think we'll wrap up the podcast. Fantastic fantastic information uh we'll have this obviously on itunes send it out to all your friends encourage them to 
to, to comment on it, but I think your information on financial world was incredibly valuable, small business and entrepreneurship, incredibly valuable, and, and really what it takes to, to, to ride that wave and, and ride the road to success. Um, sometimes it's the most simplistic things that actually get you where you need to be. And I, I think you really covered some amazing stuff uh, in the hour, and I, I truly thank you for coming on. Uh, Dave, I, I appreciate it. I mean, you obviously played ball together, and you, I'm sure you learned many of the things that I learned together. It's, it's, why, it's one of the reasons why we get along so well, one of the reasons why most, you know, most of the teammates get along so well, even after the fact because we're taught very similar um, very similar things, and it's the little things. So I appreciate your time. Uh, I, I thank you very much. Um, obviously, any questions, concerns, give me a holler, and you know where to find me. All right. It's great having you on. It was fantastic stuff, and, and I truly thank you for taking the time. And have a great day, bud. All right, brother. You be good. Thanks, man.